Hi, here's Matt Sinner of Primal Fear and Sinner, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, and welcome to episode 431 of Focus on Metal. And no, our guest this week is not Matt Sinner, but I actually put that ID up front for a very important reason, and that is that if you are uh, listening to this on uh, the week that this episode comes out, then you should know that this Friday, Sinner is putting out their brand new release entitled Santa Muerte. And I guess it does kind of pick up uh, where the last one left off, uh, last one being tequila, and this one here, a couple of uh, heavy metal sugar skulls on the front cover, and lots of great guests as well. Ricky Warwick is on this one, and of course, you know, way back, Matt talked to me all about uh, how much he was in the Thin Lizzy, and uh, of course, Ricky Warwick is the kind of the de facto voice of that right now with Black Star Riders and also with Thin Lizzy. So having him on board is very, very cool. Also has Magnus Carlson coming back on board for some guest spots. And also Ronnie Romero is on board too. But also in a new twist, they decided to bring on a permanent second voice into the band. Now, Sasha Krebs has been on before doing backing vocals, but this time they brought in uh, the vocalist from Eternal Idol to join them. I guess that uh, Georgia was involved with the whole rock meets classic thing, and uh, Matt noticed how well the audience was reacting to the combination of their voices and decided maybe a good idea to bring her on board to Sinner. So again, this Friday the 13th, be on the lookout for the new one from Sinner called Santa Miete. So who is our guest this week, you ask? Well, wait no more. Our guest this week is Guy Allison. He is the keyboard player for Unruly Child. Just put out their latest release called Big Blue World, which is uh, clearly in Richie's wheelhouse as a big slab of melodic hard rock. And uh, Richie had a great time talking with Guy all about the whole first album from Unruly Child and the history of the band and the people that have been in and out of it, relationships back to other bands, all this stuff. So this week, you're getting a pretty uh, pretty good history lesson as Richie talks through the whole thing with Guy Allison, not only about the new album, but a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And of course, that's a huge chunk of conversation between the two of them. So uh, rather than keep going about this, I think I'm just going to turn it over to Richie and Guy Allison. Yeah, hi, Guy. How are you? I'm good. Is this Richie? It is indeed. How are you today? I'm very good. So you're in California. I am. I yeah. Indeed. I think 90% of the people I interview are in California. I wonder uh, if they were born here or they just migrated. Uh, migrated, a lot of them. I am One of the guys I spoke to yesterday, I don't know if you know him, is Robin McCauley. Um, no. He's he's Irish, like me. He's a, he's um. He's out playing with Michael Shanker now, and he's in Raiding the Rock Fault. There's a show in Vegas that he's doing with Oh, uh, yeah. With Paul. He used to play that show. Yeah, that's right. Kelly did it, yeah. He, uh, Paul Shortino's in it. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that aren't born there that are just out there because that's where the business is. Yeah, well, you know, it used to be, but what, now with the Internet, I don't know if the business is here. Yeah. It's anywhere, <laughs> anywhere you are. Yeah, there's, uh, it seems to be California... Vegas, Nashville. 
there seems yeah. to be a lot of um, rock musicians tend to be in one of those three places. Isn't it funny how Las Vegas ended up being one of those places? Yeah, yeah, well... Uh, it didn't used to be when I was younger. Um, it's pro- I think a lot of the, the music, the, it's the nostalgia market now. That, yeah, um, I think so. A lot of people have the disposable income and they go out there, they want to they catch these shows with performers that they know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if if you don't mind, Guy, I want to talk, we'll talk about the new record. I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the debut on Really Child Record and maybe, sure, a little, sure. maybe a little bit about World Trade. Yeah. Um, shoot, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do the best my memory can. <laughs> yeah, I had, um, I had Billy Sherwood on last year and um, we were talking, I was helping promote the Unify record, which, which I absolutely love. And mm-hmm. he, he, he said that you guys never actually played a live show when you brought out your debut record. No, and I, I remember rehearsing for it. It was great. Mm. Um, we were very loud. And I thought, remember the rehearsal studio. I'm guessing it was somewhere in Burbank. But we were definitely rehearsing to go out live and it sounded great. Hmm. Did you guys actually did you guys actually do any showcase gigs where you played live to get a deal? Yes, we did. Okay. We played we played a couple and I'm trying to remember exactly where they were. I'm thinking it was at the power station in in the valley, but to tell you the truth, it's that's probably nineteen eighty eight now. Yeah. So uh, but I do remember the showcases. I remember particularly we did one for Geffen and John Kalotner was there. Hmm. And he, he was so funny. He said, he, he came up to us and he says, in that voice of his, he says, you guys are really great musicians, but I hate your music. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And we were, we were killing it too. We sounded great back then. I remember. Yeah. Did, did you guys want to, for, to go in and it's for want of a better term the direction that yes we're doing for like big generator and 90125 you kind of had that kind of sound was that I, you know i don't i don't think it was a conscious decision to to sound anyway i think what happened in that particular case is you put four people together that brought what they brought to the table and because billy was the lead singer and and writing really or co-writing, hmm. you know, a, the lion's share material. And Billy is a consummate Yes fan. And 901, listen, we all loved Yes when we were growing up. I, I've known Billy since he was 14. He lived in an apartment with me in Vegas, and the wallpaper was all pictures from a Yes tour book. Wow. <laughs> when, he was four, when he was 14. But, you know, we, um, we brought, like I said, we brought our influences to the table, and Billy's influences were just, immensely uh, yes at that point in time so it was just going to sound like like that you know and, and Bruce uh, actually tempered the stuff because Bruce had a lot of you know uh, Led Zeppelin and Van Halen uh, influences too so no matter what Billy did it had this edge to it when Bruce was there mm. that, would, that, would, that would make it sound more like if Jeff Leopard and Led Zeppelin crossed with 90125, you know, it was that type of thing. Yeah. Now, how surprising was it to, to do the Unify record? Because you hadn't really done anything with that band since the, probably the mid-90s. You did, a, you did a record, World Trade record, but up, up until last year, there was really nothing. Well, the, 
okay, the first record was done like a band does a record. You know, we got together, we rehearsed, we went in there, uh, we tracked, we kept the basic tracks, which in that case would probably be the basic drums, you know, maybe some guitars, and then we, we layered from there on, but we were all in the studio at the same time. The record after that, which was Euphoria, uh. was was done, you know, in piecemeal by people showing up at the studio individually and putting their parts on. And for me, Unify was exactly the same way. I wasn't even around when they were tracking any of the stuff, Bruce and Billy. And I got back off the road and they said, hey, play some keyboards on this, 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 and this. And they just sent me the tracks. And I put them up in my studio and started working on them. Mm. So that's really how that happened. So, so which way do you do you prefer? Do you prefer doing it the way you did Unify or, or the way you did the debut? Um, I, I would prefer a combination of both. I love the camaraderie and the direction of having a bunch of people together, you know, talking about what they want to do with the thing, and, and you you would invariably create a vibe hmm. when you get in the same room, and, which is really what um, Unruly Child still benefits from, like hmm. switch gears. Bruce and I create this thing by being in contact uh, with the album, you know, it's physically, you know, we're in the same place, but we're always in contact by phone too. And we're always talking about the direction that this is going to go in, what we want to try here and what we want to do there. And even though we will, we will work by ourselves in certain portions of the record, because, you know, there's a point at which you just want to stay out of someone's hair while they do what they do. Uh. Yeah, you're gonna be you're gonna layer a bunch of guitars. I'm not gonna sit there and bother you. Go do it. <laughs> or I'm gonna layer a bunch of background vocals. You don't have to sit around and hear me yodel for four hours. So uh, you know, but but when it's the creative aspect and when it's the mix and when it's the hey, we need a part to do this, we need a part to do that. I think it really benefits from people being in the same room and bouncing ideas off of each other. Mm-hmm. So. When when you're writing for the World Trade Record or, or something you're, you're doing yourself, an unruly child, um, is it? Do you have to get yourself in a certain headspace? Like, do you go back and listen to the earlier albums to try and get a, a gist of where you want to go? Like, how does that all work? Um, well, with the World Trade thing, I think that was primarily um, authored by by Bruce and Billy, and I don't, I can't speak for what they did on that. I know that for Unruly Child. We mostly just start sitting together and, and we'll get up we'll get up some type of feel. We'll go what type of let's write something at this tempo. And and we might listen to a couple of things. Bruce is notorious for bringing over, you know, a couple of MP3s and going, Here's some stuff I've been listening to, you know, and it could be anything from Brian Adams to Van Halen to Def Leppard to whatever. And we'll listen to a couple of things and mostly we're listening to it for the energy of it. You know hmm. the the vibe, the tempo, the energy, and then and then we'll come up with something. We'll come up with something that doesn't sound at all like what we were listening to. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it'll it'll have it'll have maybe the vibe, the the, the, the tempo, or the you know, or the the uh, subdivisions in the guitar. You know, instead of instead of being a relaxed thing, it might be something that goes go 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 go. You know, something like that. And and we'll really just start building off of that. And so, so the song always starts with Bruce, and then you like embellish on top of that, or could, do you bring you know, an idea in and he follows you? It always starts it, it, notoriously. Not not always because there's been things that have that have been different, but it notoriously starts with Bruce 
and I getting together, putting up uh, a, a drum groove, like a simple drum groove. You know, not the thing that we're going to finish with, but but just something so that we can hear a tempo. And Bruce starts playing stuff, and we sit there and we go. Uh, sometimes he'll just sit there and just keep playing stuff, and I'll go that thing right there that you did, that four bars. Let's record that, and we'll get that. And it'll be no, okay, that eight bars that you did there, and then we just start pushing things together in the in the recorder, going that into that into that into that, and then we listen to it and go, that could be a structure. And then I'll just start hearing melodies over it. And he'll go away, uh, and I'll listen to it like the next morning by myself, and I'll, I'll start hearing, I'll hear a chorus idea. And I'll, I'll, sometimes I'm singing nonsense stuff, but a lot of times something will jump out at me. Hmm. So, like Marcy, Marcy sent us a thing, for instance. Marcy sent us the, the, the thing... The thing that she contributed on this album, she sent us a demo of, uh, um, God, I almost said Worlds Collide. <laughs> that was a few no, albums ago. That's a couple of albums ago, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Big Blue, uh, not Big Blue World, that was a lyric in it. Um, all Over the World. Yeah, the second track. So she, yeah, she had this thing where she was playing the guitar and she was, it was, she was talking over it. And then all of a sudden, you heard this all over the world thing happen. You know, and we were listening, and I, and I, and I, and then Bruce added a thing to it. And I said, well, obviously we need a chorus. It can't just be that little tag thing all over the world. So, so I just stretched out what, what, you know, the words and just came up with a all over the world they're waiting. So I just heard that in my head. You know, and then I just, I go to the mic and I put it on and I just come up with another lyric and then I listen to it and go, all right, that could work. Let me just try throwing a couple harmonies on that and see what that sounds like. And as soon as you get a little piece like that, then you can start building a song off of it. You go, all right, what am I going to say here? What's the verse going to be? How's it going to build up into the thing? And that's really basically, and it's been that way since the beginning. Hmm. So... (laughs) Bruce would come over and he'd play something and I'd hear something and we'd go, that's the start of something. And then we'd just build it up from there. Um, do you and Bruce, do you write quickly? Yes. Okay. If we don't get, if we don't get a, um, a potential rhythm track going uh, at the end of uh, three hours, that's basically what happens. You know, he'll, he'll come over, I'll, I'll go over. I mean, lately it's been him coming over to my studio. But he'll come over and we'll start something at about noon and, and we'll have something that we like at two o'clock or three o'clock. And if we don't, and that's it, that's the end of that day. And if, if we don't find something that we like, uh, we toss it, but, um, it's never, it's usually seriously only one time out of 20 that we go, well, that's crap. We're not going to do anything with that. Hmm. Are there any ideas on this record that, yeah, you walked up maybe for a can't go home or, or worlds collide. Do, do you actually revisit any of the old stuff at all? Oh yeah. Oh, you mean revisit old stuff that we've written or old stuff? That old ideas, before? maybe that you 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 know you need a fresh set of ears. Maybe a few years down the line, you can work up and make Absolutely. a new song out of. Absolutely. When we were starting to write for Rabbit Hole, we were and we had made a conscious effort at that point. We said we're not going to follow any of our old rules. We're just going to do whatever we want. And if we write a if we write a a, a ten minute piece, we're going to write a ten minute piece. 
you know, and, and we did something like that. One of the first things out of the box was this piece that had four different sections to it. Like it was, you know, like it could have been, um, good vibrations or something from a yes album, mm. <laughs> just all these different sections to it. And we listened to it and, and we ended up not using it. Although it was one of the first things we wrote. And then we, Bruce brought it up again. He says, remember that track that we wrote and we listened to it and we took one section out of it and that became uh, Breaking the Chains. Wow. The ballad. Yeah. The acoustic ballad. Yeah. 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 Okay. So how, how much input does, uh, does Larry and Jay have into what parts they can play? Like, do you send them a basic demo with maybe a drum machine on it and then say, right, put your stamp on this? Or, or do you kind of say, right, this is the way it has to be played. Go ahead and play it. Well, now, in, in the case of... Now, here's, here's the misconception. This record is just the three of us. Okay. I know in the press or in some of the online stuff, it says Jay and Larry, which we've written to the label to try to correct. But yeah, the press, re- reason, the press release guy said that uh, Jay and Larry were on this. Yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> okay, they're not. On, they're on. Uh, they're, and part of the part of the reason for that was just scheduling. Uh, you know, Jay was out on the road, and 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 Larry wasn't available all the time. And and then part of it was just strictly we had we decided to go in a direction where it was just back to the three of us. And uh, so in that in that case, what you're hearing on this is Bruce is playing bass on everything except for one song where I'm actually playing bass. Okay. And uh, the drums are all stuff that Bruce and I have put together. Okay. Okay. Now, this record to me is, uh, it's a bit more, the guitar is definitely more up front than it was on the previous album. Was that something you consciously decided to do? Yes, we did, actually. We said, we, we made two two decisions on this record that were conscious uh, before we even started. And it, it was based on what we had done previously. And when I think about it, every record that we've done kind of has a, a, an idea that we set out to do and we, we, go, we go in that direction. Um, we, we listened to um, what we had done on the last one, Can't Go Home. And we said two things. We said, let's push the guitar to the forefront a little more on this one and let's make the lead vocal uh, be able to stand out as a focal point regardless of what the backgrounds did so those are the two things that we decided to do on this record hmm. I just personally I just found I, I love the last album I just found it very very it was very polished if, if you understand what I'm saying I was, I was, I I was looking for a bit more you know, rock, rock to it. Yeah. And I, I've definitely got it on this because, you know, you've got all over the world, you've got down and dirty. It, it reminds me a lot more of the debut album Yeah, uh, in, think, in a lot I of ways. It, I think it, it probably comes across as less polished or one comes across as more polished, but the amount of work that goes into both is, or all of them are equal. I, I think it's just a decision of what are we, are we going to strip this down and just make, make it live with the, you know, with this energy from the guitar or are we going to build it up more like a pop record? Hmm. So what we, what we did was closer to maybe worlds collide where we said, let's just let this thing live and breathe on these guitar riffs. Mm-hmm. 
Now let's so let's that's, that's what you're hearing, I think. Yeah, guy, let's talk about the one track that to me that stands out as being different to every other song on the record. Uh, Beneath the Steady Rain. When I listened to that, it sounded like something out of a a soundtrack or a musical. It, it's got that kind of vibe to it. Can you can you tell me about writing that one? That was written for uh, Rabbit Hole, believe it or not. Okay. That was one of the uh, one of the very early ones that we wrote for that. And Bruce came over and he was playing something on guitar. He was playing a couple chords, and I said, "It, it sounds it sounds like it, it, this one will live and breathe on the piano." So I started playing it on the piano, and then I moved. You know, I, I, it moved in different directions, and I got this idea. And then Bruce left, and I I did something that I had been able to do on other records, other bands that I've been in, specifically Air Supply. Where I said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna approach this like it's um, something off a of Yellow Brick Road. I'm gonna make this like an Elton John thing." And uh, and when he came back, I said, "I said this is what I did to this," and uh, he loved it. And so we got Marcy to sing on it, and it was completely different than anything we had done. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and at that point, there was only a piano and a vocal on it. There wasn't even drums and bass, which I put on later. And uh, but then we just sat on it. We were intending for it to be the second on the second side, and but we never got to that particular uh, corner of the project. And I had played it for a few people that thought it was just a great song. And I said to Bruce, no matter what we do on this record, I said, it could be as rock and roll, it could be as Van Halen as you want. And I said, but I want to put this song on the record. I think Unruly Child, the this, this song deserves to see the light of day because it's such a great performance by Marcy and it's a great piece of, piece of work. Mm. So we did. And uh, I, I, I guess Bruce gave me kind of carte blanche on it to uh, to make it different. Mm-hmm. I, I think when you listen to Marcy sing that and you listen to every other Unruly Child record, she's singing it in a different way than any other song she's sang in the past. Absolutely. Mm. She, I, she, she gave it, she almost gave it um, a very personal uh, like a pop singer, you know, like a Michael Jackson type thing or something. She gave it one of those performances, but if you if you listen to the melody and you listen to the words, it wasn't going to work any other way. It needed to be delivered like that. Mm. Now I've got my I'm getting the physical copy in the mail today, so I've only got the download, um, and I've only got ten tracks. Did you write and record more than that? Um, I think I think maybe the Japanese version has like a different mix of of one of the tunes, but that's it. Okay. Whatever, whatever you got is is what we did. Okay. Um, I want to go back a, a couple of years, guy, to um, the live show you did in Milan. Uh, how, how much rehearsal did you guys put in for that? Not nearly enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what happened on that. Um, Marcy doesn't live in California. So you've got everybody in the in the, the five piece except for Marcy here. And uh so she ran over the tracks singing to them, you know, in Michigan. And uh Bruce and I, you know, did a little pre production on the stuff here. 
and uh, we worked with them. And uh, we got the band together, I think, for one rehearsal at this tiny little uh, rehearsal place in a really bad part of the town. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we went over them. Uh, we either did it one night or two nights. I don't remember. And uh, when we got to Milan, there was such a, a uh, what's the word I want to look for? An intersection of bad events and things that happened <laughs> that, that completely derailed uh, any <laughs> ability to play the show like we wanted to play the show. But, you know, stiff upper lip, and we gave it a go, and, and uh, we had all the tracks sent to us so that we could mix them. And uh, if there was any, like, little flubs and stuff like that, we, like, fixed them up and, uh, and got to, to put it together like we wanted, we wanted the sound that night. But if I tell you the nightmares that happened for that gig, you would be amazed. It was one problem after the other. And all that for one show. Yeah, and you know we 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 did we took it because it was going to there were we knew that Frontiers wanted to have an album. It was a very pointed thing. They wanted an album, their copy of the first album, and uh, which is why we played just the material, say one or two things from the first album, and uh, we knew that it was going to be videotaped and, and released and all that, and so we we wanted, you know, we did the band doesn't play band has a lot of players that play professionally all the time but you know putting putting it together under the banner of unruly child and doing a great job you know you really should go in there and rehearse for a week and and have a couple of shows before that any major tour that i do we do it like that yeah you know but you know there's a unruly child is filled with with musicians that know how to how to go out and play live. Mm. But uh, irrespective of that, when you're faced with some of these technical hurdles that we had, it can be challenging to say the least. Mm. It just seems to me that I think around that time, Frontiers recorded a, a couple of other bands and they've, they've since released the albums. I think Steelheart was another one. And I think there was one or two more. So they obviously got you guys all together to do shows more or less back to back recorded them all and then ended up releasing right. them. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, we understood what was going on from the get-go. We knew that it was um, a way to, to have the entire catalog because uh, the first album is obviously controlled by Interscope Atlantic and, and that one's off-limits. Nobody can touch those performances. So we had to redo it. Hmm. Now, before the Milan show, when is the last time you guys that actually did a li- did a live show as Unruly Child. Well, that, that would be the show in uh, Nottingham. Okay. Fire, Firefest. Oh, that's 2010, isn't it? And which, by the way, we had no rehearsal for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm noticing a trend here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the band, the, the, the band got together. Uh, Jay and Larry and Bruce and I got together and ran, ran the songs, but never with Marcy. Marcy just came in and sang them. And uh, we had more rehearsal to play the uh, um, Palomino in the valley and 
1992, <laughs> <laughs> which I think we did for 13 people on that show. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so Guy, can I go back and talk to you a little bit about, about the debut record? Um, sure. I, it's a classic, in, in my opinion. It's fantastic. And I've actually interviewed Bo Hill. And I mentioned I did. I mentioned it. And this, to hear, trying to hear what he said about it. He loved it. Now, I don't, I don't know how you, you can get into it, how you guys got on recording it and all that. But when I mentioned Unruly Child, um, he, he said that he loved the record. And I think mm-hmm. it was one of the first albums that was released on Interscope. And the label ended up being known more for rap music in the yeah. end. Um, but he said that he had, a, you know, he thinks the album's fantastic. I think, I think that you know, we had really, really did have a good time making that record. And all we were really wanted to do, and it was very, very much the same as World Trade, we had put together the roadmap for exactly what we were going to do on the record with the demos. And all we needed to do was get in there with, you know, in a situation where the gear was better, the engineers knew what they were doing. And we could take time and just put down our ideas, you know, make a record like we knew how we, to do instead of just make a demo. And with, with Bo there to, uh, you know, to, to push things along, but we really, we absolutely went in there going, we're going to play this, we're going to play that, we're going to do this, this is the next part, that's the overdub for this, those are the vocal parts, let's go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we just, you know, all we had to do was get in there and, and you know, follow the recipe basically yeah you know, now in a better in a better kitchen <laughs> now now when world trade disbanded uh did you and, and bruce go your separate ways or did the two you like knuckle down and say right we're going to get another band together and give it another go everybody was friends you know uh we i knew billy since he was 14 i was in logic with billy um logic finally broke up in 86 and after Logic broke up, I went on the road with the Moody Blues, and Billy wanted to write for another project. He got together with Bruce. Bruce, which we all hung out together. We knew each other since we were all, you know, since maybe 1980. Uh-huh. Uh, so he started writing with, with Bruce, and and when I came back off the road, they both asked me, hey, want to join this band that we have? Uh, called World Trade. And oddly enough, I'll tell you a little secret about that. We were trying to come up with new names for Logic when we were trying to get a new deal. Because mm-hmm. uh, for some reason, we thought, let's change the name of the band. And I, I floated the name World Trade for the, tr- for the thing, and nobody liked it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the band breaks up, and all of a sudden, Billy puts another band together, and he's calling it World Trade. And I went, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, no, so they asked me to join, and then they asked Mark Williams, who we all knew, a great player, uh, Joseph's brother, who was in Toto. And uh, so we got the four of us together, and so we were all friends. Sure, we were making a record, but we all knew each other. We were all buddies. And when the band broke up, uh, and it really, the bottom line of why it broke up is because Chris Squire and, and Alan White uh, had made Billy an offer to start a new version of Yes. And Billy was such a yes fan that he just couldn't resist that. And the, the initial talk was that Bruce was going to be the guitar player in the band. And then, so they broke up World Trade. And then when Trevor wanted to come back, then Bruce was out. And, okay, Trevor Raven. And the, 
yeah, and management at the time that said to Bruce said, well, can you just, you know, why don't you just, you know, can you just like uh, tech for Trevor <laughs> or something like that? Can you put strings on his guitar? And Bruce told management, go fuck yourself. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and, and, that was, and that was the end of Bruce and Billy's involvement. So, uh, so that was the end of, of World Trade. And then Bruce and I, Bruce and I started getting together because we were just friends, you know. We used to hang out, you know, in, in World Trade anyway. And, and, we, and he said, you know, he had to deal with Warner Chapel. And he said, let's write some, some music. I said, great, let's write some music together. So we wrote one song. I sang the demo. And uh, he played it for Warner Chapel, and they loved it. They thought it was brilliant. They said, you guys, we, we have a singer. Let's, let's get this singer to come in and re-sing it. We'll have an even better shot at getting placed. So they, they said, uh, Mark Free. And I said, I know Mark Free. I played demos for Mark Free's band, Modern Design, a million years ago, you know, in 1980. Hmm. So Mark, Mark came over and, and re-sang the song, and we just loved it. It was like, God, this is great. And we just and we all got along so well. We looked at each other after we mixed the demo and said, "Let's let's try writing a few songs together, you know." And you know, we'll add to this one and see if we can get a place with somebody. And I think we came up with "To Be Your Everything" and and maybe, uh, oh God, I don't remember. Maybe it was either "Take Me Down Nasty" or or "Lay Down Your Arms." It's one of those. Okay. And we just and then we listened to it and we said. Yeah, these are really cool. This could be a band. <laughs> and then we decided at that point. And then Mark came up with the name Unruly Child. He said, I had this name floating around that no, no band has taken. He said, Unruly Child. We said, that's great. So then it was really just the three of us. And we were just writing demos and recording. And then, But Bruce had a friend, um, Ricky Phillips, that would come in and play bass and all the stuff. So it was, you know, it was a drum machine, Ricky Phillips, and the three of us doing these demos and and I was still touring with uh, Air Supply at the time and Larry was the bass player in that band ah. and, uh, and I would I would literally every time I'd be off from a, from a tour we'd be uh, writing stuff and recording it and in some cases we would take three acoustic guitars three of us and we'd go sit I remember sitting at Warner Brothers in I forgot whose office it was and we were just sitting there playing the tunes and singing them. <laughs> we didn't even take demos. <laughs> we would literally just come in and go, oh, we got this song. And we just play it and sing it. And on the strength of that, we started getting attention. It was funny. Mm. So how does Jay Shallon end up in the band? Uh, we got the deal. And we, were go we got the deal, and then we had a record on the books, a record session on the books to start recording and stuff. So I think it was Bo who said, "Time to fill out the band. We, we got to, you know, we have to, we have to get put the players in place." We asked Ricky uh, if he would do it. Ricky did the record. He played on everything in the record except for one track, I think. But um, he was involved with um, uh, the Pat um, English. No, it was a. Uh, it was Jimmy Page and and uh, oh David Coverdale and Coverdale yeah had some project that he was on and you know and I understand that it was like that's really high profile I would have done that too yeah so he so he he went in that direction but Jay we auditioned a bunch of guys and by audition I mean we literally 
didn't hear them play. We just knew who they were, and we brought them over to the house, and we, we talked to them, sent them demos and talked to them until we until we found uh, what we thought was the right personality for the band, and that's where Jay came in. Hmm. So was was Bo Hill the, the top of list of guys you wanted to produce the record? Can you remember any other names? So Bo Hill produced the record. Bo Hill was a great choice to produce the record because of his track record in the year that it came out, or I should say, not the year that it came out, but the previous year. Yeah. Because <laughs> year it came out, that was a bad, bad bit of timing. But um, Bo had the success with Warrant and and Winger, and uh, and we thought that was a good fit. Obviously, if we had our druthers, Bruce and I talk about it to this day. Um, but Lang would have been the guy to produce the record. Um, but uh, that's that's a that's a tough one. You know? He would have cost a lot of money. Well, they all they all cost a lot of money. That's uh, true. <laughs> what, what producers take in points and and pays is astounding when you think about what the band gets. Anyway, um, Bo was a, a, a VP at Interscope. It was Tom Wally, Jimmy Iovine, and Bo Hill were the vice presidents over there. And they all had their different genres, basically. So I think it was Bo that signed us and became the producer. And that's just the way that worked. Hmm. Um, was he tough on you guys in the studio? Because when I interviewed him, he said he liked to crack the whip at certain bands he worked in in the past because they were on budgets, they were on deadlines. Some of them liked to party a little bit more than others, and he had to be. A, no, a you know, we, we were we were really on autopilot. Bo, all all Bo had to do was was uh, um, was was manage the time and you know and be and be a great ear. Just, you know, when we were because we were we would listen to stuff and we would all you know know when stuff was right when it wasn't. And he was a great arbiter of that as well. Hmm. So, you know, and, and so, and, and we, we, we gave him deference as, as I think he gave us deference in certain areas too. Hmm. Uh, I'll tell you, there is an event that happened that Bo probably didn't tell you about that really was a catalyst for the, the demise of, of that version of Unreal Child. And uh, it, it's something that didn't, really didn't set well with me to this day. We were finished with the record. We were nearly finished with the record. And, you know, when you do a record in those days, the band gets an advance. But the advance that a band gets, which is against future earnings, is really maybe enough to keep you afloat for two months as far as rent and expenses and all that. Not a lot of money. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, if you're going to do this type of thing, you have to have income from another source. And for me and for Bruce, too, one of our sources of income for a, a, quite a while was touring. And that's actually still how I earn a living, touring. So I was, I was out with Air Supply. That was one source of income. And another source was I would do this. Uh, I had this act, Bruce and I both did, in Japan. And they paid uh, a lot of money. And it was the type of money where you would go out for two, three months and you could live for the entire year. You wouldn't have to worry about it. And so I thought, listen, we're going to tour this record, the Unruly Child thing. We're going to have to do press. We're going to have to do all this stuff. The last thing I want to worry about is job. You know? Yeah. I want, I, want, I want the freedom to do this. So uh, a friend of ours, uh, John McPhee from the Doobie Brothers, came into the studio and said, uh, Yazawa wants us to want you guys to 
go out on the road again, November, December. And, uh, you know, we'll be back right after Christmas, that type of thing. And so I said, yeah, because it was, you know, it was enough money to take it to the entire year. It would have, you know, would have bolstered our ability to promote the record. And Bruce took it too. And then Bo Hill took Bruce silently aside and said, if you leave and go on, on the road, I'll drop you from the label. And Bruce came to me and said, we can't take the tour. And I said, I said, why? He says, Bo, Bo says he'll drop us. And uh, I said, that's a bunch of crap. I said, the, the whole industry shuts down in November and December. It's not going to, it's not going to get back into promoting its stuff until, until January. Of course we can do this because we, we, we knew this before from, from uh, World Train, other albums that we did. And, but Bo Hill strong armed Bruce and said, Guy can leave. You can't. And so the band told me that if I took the tour in Japan, they would fire me. Now you got to remember that the band put together started with Bruce and I. Yeah. You know, and, and all the material was, was, uh, was Bruce and mine or Bruce and mine and Marcy, but the lion's share of it was Bruce and mine. And I said, no, that's, that's, that's bullshit. Hmm. I said, this is crazy. This is crazy. I'm going to take, I'm going to take the gig. And so, uh, you know, they, they kind of tried to strong arm me and it didn't work. And so they fired me literally a week before I went on the road to Japan. Now, Guy, before you go any further, had the album come out at that stage? No. Oh, it wasn't even out. Okay. It It wasn't even out, but we had played a couple of live shows. Now, after they fired me, then I heard the album on the radio. I heard the first track and I said, oh, that's cool. And then I got on the plane to go to Japan. First week I was in Japan, the band was dropped from the record label. Oh, wow. And, I, and Bruce and I laughed about that. And I told Bruce, I said, you know, if I had turned down that money for the year and then the band had dropped, I would probably would have fucking killed you. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. And, I don't blame you. About it. and Bruce was actually replaced on that tour by Dweezil Zappa. And uh, so, so, and I, you know, and I came back and Bruce and I were kind of like not talking for a few months after that because I was really pissed off hmm. because I had, I had actually been strong armed once before in that very same situation by Billy Sherwood when I was in Logic. Uh, um, Quiet Riot, who I'd been working with in the studio, wanted me to go out on the road in 1986. And, and it was in November, December, and all Logic was doing was trying to do showcases to get a record deal. And I think we weren't even called Logic at that time. We were called something else, Ocean's Eleven. And Quiet Riot said to me, um, I would want you to come out on the road. And I, and I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I was living in an apartment with Billy, actually. And I told him, and he says, you can't go. If you go, you're out of the band. A band that I was in that hired Billy actually to be in. <laughs> and, and I said, and I, and I said, all right, fine, I won't do it. So I told him, I told Quiet Right, I couldn't go. And, uh, and then we broke up. <laughs> I'm no, again, I'm noticing when, a trend here. <laughs> so when, so when they told me, so when they told me this, you know, in Unruly Child, except the dollar figures, you could add another couple zeros to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
they told me that. I said, no, fuck that. I said, I'm, I'm doing this tour. You guys deal with it, okay? Mm. They're not kicking me out of my own band. But they did. It, and, it's, then they, and, then, and then they got dropped. It's, it's, you know? it's, then, it's weird. When I, came, when I came back, I didn't talk to Bruce for a while, and then we were really good friends. Then I called him up, and we started talking, and he goes, man, that was bullshit. He said, I'm sorry about that. That was just Bo trying to divide us. It's that's really what happened. It's Bo tried to. Yeah, it's 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 fun. It's weird because one of the questions I was going to ask you was, like, you had Bo producing you and being a part owner of the label. He was wearing two hats, and I'm thinking, is there a conflict of interest there at all? Because his job is to get the best out of you guys in the studio, and to kind of maybe keep the label away a little bit. To you know, you know what I'm trying to say. And he was the label. That's, <laughs> that, the that, label that's, that's what I'm saying. Was there, was there like a conflict of interest there? Well, it, it, you know, it could be viewed as a conflict in, uh, in one light. And then the other thing, it could be a complete advantage. Because then you have the label on your side completely. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I saw it at the time, I saw it as an advantage. But listen, I, I liked Bo at the time, but I will never... I always have a bad taste in my mouth. Because Bo said to Bruce, and Bruce related this to me, he said, we don't need Guy. And what Bo didn't realize uh, is 90% of the lyrics and about 75% of the melodies were coming out of me. Yeah, well, I was like, and, and, and it's still that way to the day, you know, a record comes out and and I, I look in the press and it's like Marcy Free, Bruce Gowdy, and I'm an afterthought. And Bruce and I laugh about that because he says, they don't realize that you're the Brian Wilson of the band. Because I'm like putting all this stuff together and going, guys, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. So did, do you know, did Bo give reasons for wanting to fire you? I never, well, no, I think he just wanted to strong arm it. Okay. I, don't, I don't think he, I don't think he thought that, that, um, I think he just thought, you know, screw this. We don't need a keyboard player. Let's just trim it down to a four piece. And all we need is Bruce and Marcy. And I don't think he realized what was coming creatively out of out of my corner. You know, I don't mm. think he realized that that you know Bruce would play a riff, and Marcy and Marcy would sing uh, um, a thing in the chorus. She might sing something that would be ah, da, ah, 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 and I would go home and go. I would come up with the entire melody and the words and go, here's the song, guys. <laughs> mm. You know? And uh, I think they were missing that point. You think you think Bo would have been around then, or maybe he was, for the pre-production when you were working up the songs? And he could, no, see, well, he could this, see that, this, you know what I mean? No, this is what happened. Bruce, Bruce would literally come in, like, and this only happened on a couple of the last songs. Bruce would come in like uh, uh, like Ton of Love and he'd play dance and he'd have the whole thing and and Marcy would sing and I would take that cassette home to my apartment and I'd listen to it and I'd play it a few times and I'd go I think I know what this is going to be and I'd I'm going through the Ton of Love the dog with the light down low and I would come up with the whole verse and everything and I'd bring it back and go guys this is the tune and they'd go great <laughs> we'd track it <laughs> and, and that's literally how that stuff would happen and so you know but 
and I knew, listen, I knew that keyboards weren't going to be a big thing in this band. So my whole thing was I was going to write this music, you know, hmm. I was going to come up with these, I was going to come up with the ideas and, and go off Marcy's scats on some of the things. And in some cases, nothing. Bruce would play, play a rhythm track for me. Uh, and I would, I would just have that on a cassette and then I'd call him back 15 minutes later and go, um, I got this tune. It's called, is it over? <laughs> and, you know, and that's really how that stuff would work. Wow. So bringing it back to now, Guy, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, how would you define success for Unruly Child now? Because in the past, it was everything was measured on album sales, and the album sales aren't really there now. I don't know if you're getting an opportunity to actually play some live shows. Like, how, how do you define success now for the band? There's really only one way for me to, to define any success with this stuff anymore, and that's when Bruce and I, and, and of course Marcy, sit down and listen to something that we've done, and like it. That's about it. Hmm. You know, it's it's kind of like you know we're we, there's no there's not enough money in this to, to to even warrant the hours that we put into it because uh, we can't just slap it together in four weeks and go and take the money and go that's a record. We we always take a lot longer than you know. Bruce and I laugh and say you know we're getting paid fifteen dollars a day. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you take all the time you know when you take the time and you take the advance and you look at it you go well we're getting paid about $15 a day to do this and which might cover the electricity uh, but all we're really doing is we're putting together stuff that we like for the legacy of the band that is under the show and it's nice to read reviews and go that person got it and that person I don't know what the hell they're hearing because they didn't get it but when people get it and they like it and fans come up to us and they say they love it, hell, I'll be on the road. Bruce and I were just in Japan together doing uh, a Yuzawa tour and people came up to us with, with Unruly Child Records to sign. Mm. And at the hotel, as we're coming back from rehearsal or dinner or something like that, they're in the lobby and they got Unruly Child Records. And I look at them and I go, ah, it's the best band that could have been, you know? Do you, do you still, how close did it, did it get to do a run of shows in the last few years or do you just think now that it's just not going to happen anymore that the market's not there has there been any offers to do maybe a couple of shows in Japan or maybe one or two in Europe yes there's been offers we just had, we just got an offer recently to do something in Spain but listen you have to first of all there's airline tickets yeah there's hotel rooms there's your gear if you want to get it over there mm-hmm. cartage costs there's cost of transportation while you're there, uh, per diems for food. And that's not even getting into the fact that are we going to do this and like get no money for it personally? So you really have to put all these things in a big grinder yeah. <laughs> and see what comes out at the end and go, can we, and you can't just go over there for one show. So you got to string a few together. Uh, so unless, unless we, we look at, if we were all really wealthy men who said, Hey, Let's just do this on our dime, just for fun. But such is not the case. And I've been touring literally since 1985. Uh, but it, it really picked up more in 87 as far as the consistency. Um, anywhere between 
six and nine months out of the year, although now it's down to about three. And I know what it takes, and I know the rigors of it, and I and I understand how, how expensive it can be. And you can't just go off half-heartedly and do this stuff. It has mm. to be done right. Or you're you're going to shortchange fans if you just go in there with crap gear and, and without rehearsals and that type of stuff. Has there ever been... Uh a musician or a band that you've ended up playing with, either doing session work or, or live shows, that I said to you, the reason they picked you is because of your work with Unruly Child. No. <laughs> okay, I, 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 okay, I just I figured that was a, a question I could ask you. No, I, well, no, actually, there, there might have been, I worked with um, Adrian Vandenberg a few years ago on a project. You know, uh, before you go anywhere, there was a, I, I had, when I knew I was talking to you, I said to myself, okay, there's a guy I spoke to in the last two years that guy played on an album with, and for the life of me, I couldn't remember his name. So thanks, yeah. Adrian Vandenberg. And, and now we worked, we worked together on a project that predates Unruly Child, I think. Uh, and that's why he, he used me uh, sporadically uh, over the years. And um, I had worked, and it's funny, I just did a show with Michael Thompson where uh, Quiet Riot was on the bill. And uh, I was talking with, um, oh God, I just forgot, it, uh, Frankie Benali? Frankie, the drummer, yeah. yeah. The drummer. Frank, and Frankie, and I talked to Frankie, I go, hey, I haven't seen you in 30 years. And he, he knew who I was. He goes, man, he says, how are you doing? He says, you really should have done that gig. It was good. I said, long story. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and that predates that predates world trade. Um, every gig that I've gotten since, I've been working um, has probably piggybacked off the other, but oddly enough, none of them had anything to do with that early child. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to leave you go, Guy. The album is fantastic. I think it's... Oh, I really appreciate that. It's, um, it's, I think it's one of the best melodic hard rock albums of the year. And I've always been a huge fan and, you know, I've always supported the band. So fingers crossed for some live shows. Oh, you know what? And it's not like we haven't talked about it. Bruce and I keep talking about it, saying, you know, if it's right, if we could pull this together, uh, we would do it. Oddly enough, one of the things, not to, not to belabor the point, but one of the things that we have bounced back and forth that we thought would be a great thing is a filmed retrospective of the band. Hmm. But obviously, to pull something like that off, you need investors. But you know, we're the only band that has the story that we have. Yeah, remember. Well, you, you told, lead, you've told me some of it, and there's a story there, all right. Yeah, I mean, with a lead singer, fantastic lead singer with, with a, quite a history with other bands, uh, you know, we get this deal where, where it's a storybook deal. The band should have been, if not for the musical climate at the time, the band should have been, you know, up there with any of the other bands in that genre. Yeah. I think we would have, I think we would have been at least as big as Cinderella, if not bigger. Uh, the musical climate changed, but then the lead singer changes agendas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then we come back later to record more stuff. I don't think, I think that's, I'd watch that movie. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's not, it's not like, like like it was just un, an unknown entity. We have people that have worked and played in this band that are part of the, the regular, you know, rock and roll scene. Yeah. So, anyway. So maybe that, 
that's something to look forward to in the future. Do, yeah. So do, if, do, you know, if you know if you know if you know any investors, I want you to call me back. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> do do you think you're going to keep making unruly child albums? Like you, you're okay now, just making the music, and, and that's that's good enough for you. Well, we'll probably. I, I you know Bruce and I always work together, and we and, and since we've gotten back together with Marcy, where even though she doesn't live in Michigan we're as tight as we were when we were kids. So as long as, as long as we want to do something creative between the three of us, there's nothing that will stop that. Excellent. Well, I think that's a, that's a good way to end the interview, Guy. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right, you too. All right, now, have a good rest of the day. Okay, bye. bye. She's chat with Guy Allison of Unruly Child, as well as a lot of other bands, uh, past, present, and uh, probably future as well. And come out of the interview, you uh, heard a bit of a track from the brand new one, Big Blue World, called The Hard Way. So if that sounds like something you want to hear more of, then I would urge you to go out and pick up the brand new one, like I said, from Unruly Child with uh, Guy Allison. And uh, that is, again, Big Blue blue world so not sure what is in store for next week Uh, i'll find out when uh, we get things all together and uh, we hash it all out and see what happens but uh, for sure we'll be back again next week bringing you more of why you come to focus on metal in the first place and hopefully at least for me i hope that's something that's a bit less melodic and a little bit more on the metal side But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant.
over. Go home.